Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Welcome to this very special show of the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, and one of the things we're going to do today is we're going to boil down the meatiest nuggets, the most interesting points of view and stories and tips so that all of you busy professionals out there can come listen to these two episodes and get most of the value from a whole series of fantastic conversations with leaders. Tell us who is your best boss ever and why? I think you said once a best boss is someone who ever forever impacts you for the better. And that made me think of my first boss. She led a manufacturing business. She was also the VP of sales and I was on her marketing team, my very first job. Looking back, you know, I would characterize her as a servant leader. Though back then I hadn't heard that way of describing a corporate leader. So it was new for me, but true to being a servant leader, she really set the vision. She set our direction and our goals, and she saw it as her responsibility to make sure that we were all super clear on how these vision directors and goals related to our roles. But that was the extent of her hierarchy. After that, she really turned the traditional hierarchy pyramid upside down. She led from the ground up, serving us as her team. We felt included and listened to. All ideas were welcome. And whenever we needed help, she was really there to unblock our barriers. And one of the things that impressed me as young in my career was she visibly set time in her calendar to be available for coaching us and to support us. She was very results orientated, but that meant she still put people ahead of results no matter what. And as a result, we really became this high morale team. We had high performance metrics. And I learned from her something that I've taken with me forever. And that is leadership is something leaders do alongside people and they don't do it from a distance. And one story that came to mind was that she was designing a new product and she wanted everyone from the plant production team to the marketing and sales team to provide ideas on the product features and the launch. It was her vision that when we launched this, customers would say, yes, this new product helps me where others' products don't. To be authentic to what customer pain points our customers were having, she loaded everyone up on two big coach buses, and we drove to the States. It took us about three or four hours. And then she divided us into small groups where we had permission to walk the entire customer operations. And we had one question to ask, and that was, how can we help you? Well, Christine, we launched more than just a new product from this trip. We reimagined everything from our shipping container labels to our quality control reports to even how we put language and and images and instructions in our sales collateral. And that, to me, was an amazing insight in terms of what it is to be a servant leader, to really go out and serve your customers, but really serve your staff as well. I have snippets from the leaders and the mentors or the role models who have been in my life. And the reason for that is because of the way dentistry is set up. And so a couple of the individuals that come to mind are the ones who really pulled me aside early on in my career and really wanted to know what my vision was within dentistry, with my own personal life. 
and how they could then help me strive for that and how would they would then fit into what it looked like for me. And the reason why that was so important is because early on, especially when our high achieving mentality is get really good grades, get into school. Okay. Get even better grades at that point in time, graduate, finish residency, and then become an associate or then become an owner and run your own dental clinic. And because you kind of get stuck in that hamster wheel aspect of next step, next step, next step, sometimes you don't give yourself that opportunity to breathe and take a look at the fact that what do I actually want? And so the individuals who really stood out for me are the ones who gave me the opportunity to share with them early on being like, well, this is what I think. And then we would have a really honest and open conversation being like, okay, this is maybe where you need to take your energy. This is maybe the next education step that you want to take. And maybe don't jump in too far into the deep end right off the bat with this, but not saying that you can't do it. So it's that empowerment aspect, which I find was consistent with the top bosses who come to mind for me. So this individual is so very calm and level-headed, had been in the years for multiple decades. And there was one day where I was just having a really bad day in clinic. And I just felt it was one of those kind of steamroller days. And it ended up at the point where I closed the door to my office and I just started crying my eyes out. And I was like, I am not fit for this at all. So I was giving myself the moment and I heard a knock on the door and he came over. And at this point in time, I know my eyes are super red. I'm trying to wipe the tears. And I'm like, like okay, don't let anyone know I'm crying. Exactly. I'm like, I don't know who's on the opposite side of the door right now at this point. So I was like, okay, compose, compose. And then I opened up the door and he walked in. He's like, do you want to sit and chat? And I was just like, okay. <laughs> and so we closed the door and he's like, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. And he's like, no, how are you really doing? And it was just that moment where all of a sudden I just started to cry again and I couldn't hold back my tears. And we sat for the next 15, 20 minutes. And he is such a calm individual, which that then I felt just fell onto me. Like all of a sudden the environment was calm. All of a sudden what I felt was a disaster was no longer a disaster. So that in and of itself, where he walked in, exuded this calmness, but then also respected the fact that I was extremely emotional and that didn't define me as a dentist, as an individual, or even as a woman in what I was doing. It was, this is the situation and how are we going to figure out? So then it doesn't necessarily happen exactly the same way the next time. And I am so very grateful for that encounter because it then set me up for how I want to continue to lead my own team moving forward. Okay, the first area that I categorize this in would be those bosses that eliminated fear. So I have a couple examples of this. And what that means just really is we can't create innovation. We can't create change, drive change, drive results if we are fearful of our jobs, of trying new things, et cetera, making mistakes. So a couple of things. First of all, early career, Mary, I'm in one of my first sales jobs. And I'm ambitious and I'm darn it. I'm going to hit my numbers. I'm going to 
be an overachiever. I'm going to be the top salesperson. I'm going to beat that darn competitor and I'm going to go for it. I did my work. I did my prep. I did all of that. Then once upon a time, I actually lost a deal. It was a big deal and I lost it. Just, I was devastated, right? So this is early in career. I lost the deal. I thought I was all that and I was devastated. I finally got the nerve, went into the office and told my boss that I lost this deal. And he says, I come into my office, come into his office, shut the door. And I thought, oh no, oh no. I can't believe I've never been hired from a job. Here it comes. I'm Here it comes. Hired. How could this be? And he said, okay, let's, let's talk about this. So did you follow the plan and the process that you've been trained? And did you do what you're supposed to do? Yeah, absolutely. Did you do the best you could on this deal? Yeah, you know what? I I put it all out there. I know I did that. He said, can you look back and potentially learn something from this? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about it. And yeah, there was a couple of things that maybe I should have done differently. Did anyone die? He said. <laughs> no, That's no, fantastic. no one died. No one died. He's like, okay, good. Get out of my office. Learn from this. Pick yourself back up and go win some more deals based on what you learned. And I'm sure the conversation would be different the next time if I made the same mistake, which is also part of this living in fear and making sure you can try things. You can be innovative, but if you make a mistake, learn from it and don't do it twice. One was uh, when I first came into this company and I just had someone I worked with and I came in sort of as the second in command, if you will, a CFO. And the person I worked with at the time had hired me. He just had an all-around knowledge of the business and was just so knowledgeable in just every facet of the business. And I just liked the fact that you could take any sort of issue to him and have a discussion about it. And he would weigh in and not tell you what to do, of course, but he would weigh in and give you some things to think about. He very much let me do what I did and, you know, say it out of my way. And, you know, and that's been mostly true in my career as I've worked for people who sort of, you know, let me do what I do and pretty much stayed out of my way or else I wouldn't have stayed. Right, because that is the old adage, right? You don't quit a company, you quit the boss. You know, that's almost always true, but you really just quit people who don't let you do what you do. And and so I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of people who let me do what I do. It's been fun. It's such a good example though. You know, sometimes when I'm working with leaders, they're kind of like you said, they jump to the business conversation first. We always want to be really efficient and really purposeful about time. I find that, you know, by nature, we always jump in and talk shop right away. And I think it's interesting that he slowed you down and he prioritized getting to know you almost with the assumption that if he got to know you, he'd be able to do business with you better. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And so I've really tried to learn from that. I'm not good at it all the time. I sometimes get it right. But I always, in the end, find out more about people. You know, this this is not just one person who just shows up at your office every day. These are people who spend most of their waking hours with you. And, you know, so that's why I've always looked at that and said, let's build a family culture in the organization so that it becomes a a fun place to come to. I, I've always enjoyed when I hear laughing in the outside or in the office or wherever. And I will sometimes in my management by walking around, wander in and to a group that's ha- having some fun and I will have a laugh with them and, and just look at them and say, okay, permission to have fun. I have to say, this is a real honor. So my best boss ever was Megan Ford, who actually was my boss for almost the last, I would say eight years. Unfortunately, we lost Megan a couple of months ago. So this just means the world to be able to honor and kind of remember why we were all so attached, actually so inspired by her leadership. 
I remember the first time I met Megan, there was an ease about her. Although she was a woman leader and an important leader for our organization, and she could have been intimidating, but she just wasn't. She had this warmth about her. She had this inviting nature about her. And I think the thing for me that marked me the most over the years was her generosity of herself and her time. And that just allowed her to have an impact so much broader than what many leaders will have a chance to have in their career. She found a way to simplify the way that she talked about her business. And when you think about the B2B business that she led in a pretty large CPG company, um, her ability to simplify, teach, and attract talent because of the passion that she had for it, she just had a way of being able to demystify and simplify to the easiest denominator for people to be able to grasp what our business was really about and how it was different. That is an incredible trait when I think of a best boss, the ability to uplift people when they're not, when they feel stuck or they feel frustrated or they feel impatient. You know, all of those feelings can become quite toxic if nobody actually leads in that moment. A lot of companies talk about engagement and how engaged employees will drive a higher level of efficiency. And I would even say of performance. And I think having a best boss does that, but it does it in a way that allows you to remember the people aspect of leadership and not just the results that are expected of a leader. And I think Megan had just a remarkable balance between those two. You never felt as if the performance would come ahead of the people. And I think that made you want to work even harder on her behalf and wanted you to kind of follow her because of the passion that she had and her ability to maneuver the balance of people and performance. I think what marked me the most when Megan was recognized at our funeral was actually her husband who asked everybody to pay it forward. And for me, that really made an impression on me. And I have to say, there is not an interaction at work today where I don't think of whether or not I have left the person that I've just interacted with in a better or worse place. And if I have the ability of getting people to feel better after an interaction, to me, that is the best recognition of just the sheer aura that she had the ability to have over this organization and her team. And, and it allows me to make sure that I keep part of her. The other thing for me that I continue to think about when I'm in situations that are probably <laughs> challenging is I take a step back and this might sound really cliche, but I, I think about what would Megan do? And it often helps me affirm what my intuition is because it's not always easy, especially when you're being tested in new roles and so on. But for me, it gives me the confidence to take a step back and just kind of use that as a benchmark. Not that I'm trying to emulate, but I sure want to have the opportunity to be able to inspire and make sure that this has not happened in vain. And that for me is important. The leaders that I've learned from most over the years are those who have challenged me. So I joined American Express in January of 2002. 
And I went off on maternity leave on September 26, 2002. So nine months after joining this company, I went off to have my first child and I disclosed it up front to them, said I was expecting when I was in the process with them. And, you know, they said to me, okay, we're investing in you long-term, not short-term, so come on board. And that was like my first experience with the company where I was like, okay, this is a special place. And that was a very authentic answer that I'd gotten from that leader in that moment in time. And, you know, you fast forward three years later, I'm about to go on maternity leave having my second child. I just won two President's Club awards for my performance as an individual contributor over time. It moved into a leadership role. And that's when one of my best bosses ever came into the picture. And his name is Andy Pilkington. So Andy is now EVP at the TD Bank, but he's truly this person who took a chance on me. He saw the ambition in me. He opened the door for me to accelerate my career. And our story is an interesting one because, you know, he promoted me while I was on maternity leave for my second child. Wow. So he called me because a role became available, a director role. And he said, I think you'd be great for this. I know you've just left. You've just had your second child. And I had just had her like two or three days after I'd had her. He called to congratulate. And he said, hey, this, this happened. And we really like you to consider this role. And so he promoted me while I was on maternity leave. I went through this really quick little process. You know, suddenly I was promoted. I said to him, look, I want to be off on mat leave. And he did not ask me to come back early. He left that in my decision to make. And then while I was off on mat leave, so two kids, a three-year-old, a three-month-old, and he said to me, um, you know, this is your role. It's there for whenever you want to come back you go and just enjoy being a mom right now. So that was like an amazing feeling because anyone who's ever had to think about going off on maternity leave, that's a worrisome time. You're worried about so many different aspects of things. It was a fantastic moment. And, you know, I realized all these years later, he was really just allowing me to be my best self. And my best self was all different aspects of me. And that's where he brought out the thoughtfulness about recognizing that in the grand scheme of being, you know, having young kids and managing, you know, a very stressful situation and being there to support my husband's health, that I was the one that was being deprioritized in all of that, which makes sense in those moments. It's not only about for his own empowerment and his own expansion of network. It's about the, you know, the networks that he's creating and he's touching as he goes. He's a very like humorous, happy, joyful person to be around. And so he brings humor to the table. But he's also a very caring leader. And if I think about him from a networking point of view, it wasn't unusual for him to just work the entire time he was heading up to his cottage. He'd be on the phone just calling random people, checking in on teams, checking in on projects. It wasn't formal. It was casual, but it was meaningful. And it really made a difference in someone's life in that moment. My best boss ever, uh, really, I think when I was reflecting, really let me be who I was. So I was able to come to work authentically. One of the things that can be the same or a little different uh, in the not-for-profit world is the passion for the work. 
when we get to work with children and families on a regular basis, that's something that, you know, you can really delve into and dive into. And my best boss definitely brought out the best in me by understanding what made me passionate and uh, what helped to move me forward in my work. So as I was reflecting, I kind of thought oftentimes people are talking about the best bosses ever from the context of they were supportive, they were helpful. Sometimes it was uncomfortable. And when I look back on that, I feel like that was the time when the learning really happened. And when they were challenging me, it was also from a supportive perspective. So they were challenging me. They knew me well enough to know that I wanted to move forward, but also knew how far I was able to go in that moment and then continued to help me grow over time. The first thing that I learned was that I could do a lot more than I gave myself credit for at times. And secondly, that Best Boss ever really gave me an opportunity to do things that they were doing. So it almost moved me into the role of what they were doing before I actually got into that role. So it did a couple of things. One is it challenged me to think beyond what my current job was. But secondly, what it did was it gave me confidence that when I decided to move into that type of role, that I could do that role and made me a little more familiar with, you know, what that might look like as well as test that out and see if that was something that was also for me. And this was a fun exercise to go back through my resume and look at my career and reflect back. And it, what struck me, the thing that, that came to mind, first of all, was a boss I had very early in my career when I was just starting out working as a hands-on technologist. And he, was, he had all the characteristics of a great boss, friendly, supportive, had a lot of trust, great feedback, et cetera. And I think I'd probably worked for him for maybe a year and a half and in one of our, our meetings, he said to me, you know, Barry, you don't have to do this job your entire career. And he proceeded to explain to me all the other things that I could do. And it was sort of two messages. One, it was, FYI, pal, there's a big world out there and you shouldn't think that somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder. And I think that's the important message that everybody needs to hear that, Careers need to be built and they take work. And so that, that was great. The second thing was him explaining to me something that, frankly, we assume people know, but how do you ever know unless anybody tells you that there's actually lots of opportunity for you and you should seek it out? And the third thing was, you know, what he was sort of highlighting was that he, he wasn't just treating me as somebody that did stuff, but he actually paid attention to what I did and how I did it and let me know of all the great opportunities that that were available to me. And it was a very large organization. But I think I think the point is, I remember going home, I can almost see it and thinking to myself, holy cow, like I had no idea that there was a whole career available to me. And, and that was really, I think, the start of my career, despite having worked for a few years, that I actually took on more and more leadership roles and took building my career seriously. But if he'd never had that to me, I don't know that I ever would have. And I, I talk to a lot of less senior people in the organization and I try and get to the point of having that conversation. And it's remarkable to me how many people go, wow, I, I, did, you know, I didn't know that. And they probably would have stayed in the same job for most of their career without ever having benefited themselves from a, a more diverse career, but also having the organization benefit from all that they have to offer. The other early boss I thought about was uh, perhaps a little bit later in my career. And again, a, a great boss. I was very happy to work for him and supportive and encouraging and, 
and very happy to see me grow and flourish. But the one thing that he did for me that nobody else had until that particular point in my career was we just finished a presentation to a fairly senior group. And, you know, I said, how do you think that went? And he said, you know, good, clear messaging, articulate, you know, you kind of waffled in the middle there. And it was a really great example of two things. One, it was honest feedback and it was delivered in the moment. And I think everybody or a lot of people talk about the value of feedback, but it's amazing as I have taken it more and more seriously to give people feedback. How many people say to me, wow, you know, nobody's ever actually given me honest feedback. You know, I've had lots of people say, good job. I've had lots of people say, well done. But I've never actually had somebody do me the courtesy and the respect of giving me open, honest, constructive, of course. I mean, you know, there's better and worse ways to deliver it, but open, honest feedback. And I think you're demonstrating that you care about the person's career. You're demonstrating that you care about the person's development, but you're also respecting them as an individual because that kind of feedback is very, very personalized, you know, most of the time. And of course, it has to be delivered in the moment, but it, it just opened my eyes to the, you know, it stung a little bit initially, but of course, afterwards, I thought about it and thought, you know what, he's right. <laughs> it was waffling. That's the truth of the matter. And, and now I'm trying very carefully not to be a waffler. And it, it reminded me of a great coach I had one time who said, because again, I think a lot of people talk about giving feedback, but very few people actually do it. She said, it's better to give somebody a bad day than a bad career. Mm. And every time I hesitate to give somebody feedback and I think, oh, is this going to sting too much? Is this fair? I, I think those words resonate in my head. And I think better for me to let them hear it, take it or leave it. But at least I'm being honest now. At least I'm giving them the opportunity to do better and grow better. So the guy I picked for this one, I said there were so many, but a guy by the name of Kim Hamilton. So Kim Hamilton was my boss at HP. He brought me into HP and, and was my boss there when I was running emerging products. So I came from Apple into HP. The reason I, I put on him is that he was a kind of a low-key leader. And what I mean by that was he really empowered people and he built non-dependent empowered teams, which I think is the real game for, for leaders today, right? If you've got leader, if you've got, if you're a leader and you're complaining, everyone's coming to you and whinging to you and you've got problems you're solving and you're really, really working all these hours. Well, that's, that's on you because you haven't, you've built a team of people who are dependent on you. And what Kim did was come in from Toshiba into HP, which was very interesting because HP had a lot of people that just basically promoted internally because it's such a great company. And Kim came in from Toshiba and he realized that they needed someone different to run emerging products. This is a newer products that were coming to market. You'll laugh when I say this, but one of my emerging products I ran was color printing, right? So oh, yeah. <laughs> going back, we're going back, we're going back mid 90s. You're dating so, yourself now, yes. I'm dating myself. But there was also a whole bunch of uh, other products I had, but and they wanted someone different. And so he fought for me. I came from Apple. In Apple, we were just we we're evangelists, we we're innovators, yeah. we we're always, always the underdog. So he want, he needed that kind of spirit. And so Kim fought for me. And I remember the interviews I had at HP. And the first interview I went there, and I just wanted to be there. I just wanted to join HP so bad. And they they kind of were a bit edgy with me. And, and it's mainly because my greatest reference, who I thought would be my, my golden reference, basically told them, oh, he won't last there because you guys are too slow for him. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. That's not exactly what I wanted you to say, but I'm in it to his yes. point. And so I remember 
I remember Kim really fighting for me and Kim saying, look, can you come back? I've got one more interview with, with, with John Biskey, who was the head of Australia at the time. And I came back in and I sat there with John and John and Kim were there and John was running it. And John just said, I'm just not sure, Rob, you know, I'm just not sure you'd be able to fit into the culture here. I don't think you'd fit the culture. Um, I think it's, I think you're really not. I think you're a great, great record. I think, but I just don't think HP is the place for you. And I was so devastated. And then Kim kind of jumped in and he let me tell my story. At the end of it, before I was going, I said to John, yeah, John, I really appreciate your view and the whole thing, but I'm coming here one day. And John turned around to Kim and he said, if that's your attitude, Hartnett, you can come now. <laughs> that was so cool. That is oh, great. God. It was Kim fighting for me. And then Kim, when I had to do a lot of things, I had to break a lot of rules at HP or establish things like we've always done it this way here. Kim would back me. And I think it's so important as a leader, he would back me. He would go, yep, I want you to, yeah, that's fine. No, I'm backing Rob. And Christa, you'll love, you'll, love, you'll love this little story. When I went to HP, HP used to have fleets of fleets of cars, like had all GM cars, right? So the car park at HP in Melbourne was full of GM cars, all these General Motors cars, right? Because they all bought them on the lease for the salary plan. I was driving a Porsche 911. I, and that was my car. Breaking the because rules. Because at, at Apple, like that was almost the standard car. Like four out of five of us had Porsches. So I've, I've come up my 911 and it was this hot car. It was, it was so loud. It used to set off car alarms in the GM cars. And then someone went and complained. A leader behind my back came and complained to Kim and said, hey, who's this guy you've hired? How much money are you paying him? He's driving a freaking Porsche 911. And you know what Kim said? Kim said to this guy, this leader, a peer of Kim's, he said, he said, yeah, it's good. We're all getting them. <laughs> well, my best boss was a former elite athlete. In fact, she was at the Olympic level. So she wasn't her very nature personally driven and she wanted to win as a team. It was in her DNA. And she had a very coach-like style and, and she would, and I know you'll appreciate this, she had a, a drip drip approach to giving advice, particularly to younger people in her team, such as myself. And she would always just infuse it in the conversations. And so you never felt like you were being lectured to or told or coached. It was just a part of constant ongoing learning. And you know what? She's given advice that has stuck with me for my whole career, three in particular. The first was lead yourself first. She would say, you can't always control the outcomes in your life, but you are always part of the influencing processes that decide that outcome. And so if you're leading yourself first, you can control how you react to those outcomes. And people want to be led by people who are leading themselves well. And she modeled that for us. And so I've already kind of picked that up. The second, she said, is be confident in what you know and be curious by what you don't know. And to this day, I still ask a lot of questions. I read every morning. I invest in my own and my team's professional development so that we can infuse those new learnings into all we do. The third thing she said, which was very practical, was high performers hire other high performers. Well, I got to say at being 20, you know, 24, at first I was just thrilled. She thought I was a high performer and got some positive feedback. And then I kind of really dug down and heard the additional responsibility she was saying to me because I was at that time hiring a co-op student that I needed to really hire people that maybe I would work for one day. And if I kept that always top of mind, then I would want people to join the organization and my team specifically that could be mentored, who could grow and flourish. And maybe one day I could work for them and I'd be proud to do that. Those three pieces of advice have been ones that, you know, you look back at a 
you know, what is a good boss? It's someone who's peppered you with all of these pearls of wisdom that you can take forward yourself. And it's helped shape my career and many of my conversations with my staff. One of the characteristics of a best boss that, you know, my husband and I both saw, particularly in Procter & Gamble as an example, is the people who don't dwell on the past mistakes, who just kind of dust it off and say, okay, what are you going to do going forward? But key learnings can also be to like what worked really well, because sometimes you don't quite know it's magical, the price, the customer, the environment. Well, how can you replicate that again to have scalable and repeatable success? So the other thing I would just, you know, add was, was this whole key learning. And it was just interesting to go from my best boss to kind of a best boss practice and how those two can be interfused. So tell me about your worst boss. I haven't had a lot of them for one. But I, I guess I should call that the guy who fired me is my worst boss. I was working for a company that, well, it was one of those companies when you walk in, it was too good to be true. When, you, when I looked at the financial statements, all of it was good. But when I actually got inside the doors, I saw that they were basically insolvent. The good news is we figured out a way to get us out of that situation. And I was a big part of how that got figured out, I would say. And But one day he came into my office and he fired me on the spot and he didn't tell me why. And I had no really no idea why. I found out later that some people had positioned me as that I should be taking over the business. And it was his private business. I mean, it was never even in the scope of my mind that I would do that. So in the end, it wasn't a great experience. But through the process, spent about two years there. We took a business that was basically insolvent and turned it around and got it fixed and put it in a good place. You know, I've also heard a term blame culture too, which I think is part of that fear, right? You don't want to be the one. Oh, that was the mistake Mary made or Mary made that and now we are all paying for it. Or you know what I mean? I just think like fear and faith is such an important thing that I try to live with always that I just, I can't live with fear. Two things come to mind. One is it's important for leaders to remember that they set the tone. And when I think of a boss who wasn't great, super smart guy. I definitely learned a lot, probably, you know, how to be more Machiavellian than not, maybe not a great skill. But the thing that, that I, that I recall is a very sour attitude that pervaded the entire team. And it's important to remember to set the tone from the top. And it doesn't matter where you are in the organization. If you have people reporting to you, you have a responsibility to set a positive, productive tone. And everybody in the team had that attitude. And I've noticed as I encounter teams where there's a a little bit of a negative attitude, nine times out of 10, whoever leads that team has a negative attitude because people hire in their own image, but people also take their cue about how to behave from their boss. And so I think when I think about what was what was bad about that situation was a very negative attitude that that included making disparaging comments about others. Yeah, I think one of the least favorite traits of mine and probably of many people's is when a leader's talk and walk don't align. They say one thing, but their own actions don't reflect what they say. And and that can come in the form of micromanagement, feeling a lack of trust, feeling that you're out there, but you're maybe not supported. And I think that's where you can you can see people feel just not sure they're going to give their best. And I don't think it's intentional. It's just that there's there's not sort of that openness to give it your all because there may or may not be the safety net. There may not be the joy or the laughter in that. So what advice, if you had to sum it up, 
what advice would you say to any of the leaders that are listening to the show that are trying to become a best boss ever? What would be your pieces of wisdom for them? First off, I make sure I don't just automatically walk into a situation where I'm fuming because that's not going to serve anyone and I'm not going to get to a solution at that point in time. So now what I do, and I take a step back, I try to examine all the different sides of the story on why potentially that individual did what they did. And so now it's, okay, maybe I'm seeing, maybe I'm not seeing something that they saw and that's why they acted or reacted the way that they did to the situation. And so I now ask myself a couple of questions and think, okay, if I were in the situation, this is how I would respond, but they were in the situation. So we're not two same people. So because of that, they're going to respond differently. So let's go in and ask questions this time. So instead of me going in with just blanket statements and saying, you did this wrong, why did you do this? And and so on and so forth. I go in and I say, explain to me why your thought process was the way that it was. So then now it gives me an understanding on well, maybe they weren't actually on the same wavelength as I was, or maybe I explained how to do something inappropriately, or they misinterpreted something. So now there's a miscommunication. So it doesn't mean that they were doing it wrong. They thought that they were doing it right, which in actuality, they were because of the miscommunication. So I think that that plays a huge part in taking a step back and taking a deep breath before jumping and fuming is, okay, let's actually gather all the facts first before making an assumption or jumping to a conclusion and then recognizing, okay, if there is a miscommunication, how can we go about fixing this? And then what can we do the next time so then there isn't a miscommunication? The hardest value that we have is called work-life balance. My definition of work-life balance is understandably different from someone else's. And as people deal with that, they say, you're not living up to your balance statement. You're not living to that value. And I said, you're right. It's the hardest thing to deal with. As I said, it's different for everybody. But just think about it this way. If that wasn't one of our values, how bad do you think it would be? It makes us think about it. It's driven our benefit plans. It's driven some of the flexibility we have around our work schedule. It's driven the fact that we are a family. We get that. And if there's a sick child at home, Please deal with it. I've actually coined the phrase work-life wisdom because I call it, it's custom for each one of us. So my wisdom is exiting at 5.30 so I can spend quality time with my three and five-year-old. But your wisdom may be different. You know what I mean? You might choose to have dinner at seven o'clock at night or make sure that you get time with the cats. <laughs> like you, it, it can be a very different version of what your wisdom is that tells you what you need to stay resilient. That's that's exactly right. And that's precisely the point. If you want people to be engaged in what you do every day, you have to treat them as humans. You have to give them some flexibility, right? You have to treat them in the way you'd like to be treated. Never let performance come ahead of people would be one of them. If you had good news or bad news, would you want to be the kind of person that you would want to share it with? And I think the ability for people to know that they can do it in either situations, I think is really important for new bosses and new leaders. I would say, be mindful of whether or not you build confidence and build trust and build credibility in the people that you engage with. Because I feel like as a leader, you do that through transparency and honesty, but you also do that with allowing people the freedom 
and the opportunity to prove themselves. And I think it's such an important trait for a leader to make sure that people feel uplifted and stronger because they know that they have your support. To me, these would be the three things that I think really have changed the way that I think about leadership. Okay. I think the first thing is manage your career with intent. So I think that if you have aspirations to be a boss, you should manage your career with intent. I think that you should understand the power of connection and really make sure that you leverage the connections. And, you know, that sort of then springboards me into the power of networking. I think I mentioned not my favorite thing to do, but such an important thing to do. Because if you think about it as being a boss, the more networked you are, either internally or externally, You can open doors, you can remove roadblocks for your team, your team can learn from the relationships, you can introduce your teams to those relationships. I think it's just really important that you continue to think about what that means for yourself and for your broader team. Well, I think first and foremost, I would say engagement. So making sure that people have an opportunity to be part of the organization and part of the change that you're wanting to see within your leadership. The second piece would really be about how you continue to grow people and making sure that you know them well, making sure that you're interested in their well-being and that you also challenge them to continue to grow and to develop over time. Well, the best leaders I've worked for, there's been a common bound, and that's been that they love to learn, and they want you to learn. As you think about your career, as we talked a little bit earlier about being purposeful about your career, part of being purposeful is making sure that you're learning everything you can along the way, right? That's going to prepare you for your next role, whether it's in the current organization or whether it's outside the current organization. But as long as you're learning every piece, then you're in a good place. I look for a boss who is, who is a lifelong learner. And that's how you're going to be able to lead people and, and have a successful career by learning as much as you can along the way. So that is the other thing for a young leader. Get a mentor. Get somebody who is you can speak to, maybe in the same organization, but perhaps not. I've done some mentoring of some people from other organizations, and I've learned a lot from them as well. I love mentoring a younger person because how much do I learn from a younger person? You know, this is your own unique journey, and you really need to be an active participant in it, in your own career, and you need to be the CEO of you. And ultimately, it was my experience with both of them that helped me get to the, you need to be the CEO of you and just go for it and not be afraid of your ambition. I think the the impact comes in in many forms. Sometimes it's obvious in terms of you know increased cost or or lost productivity. And may, maybe I'm a little bit biased here. I find in technology you often meet incredibly smart people, like incredibly smart people. But if they don't understand, again, if they don't understand the value of the work that they do, their level of engagement the amount of effort that they're going to put in to solving a problem is not going to be at the level that you need it. And if you want to get those really big brains fired up around solving problems, making things more efficient, delivering products more quickly, finding ways to to do things more cheaply, if they're not engaged and enthused, you're just not going to see the productivity and you're not going to see the engagement. And the thing is, I can't remember the expression, something about one bad apple, one bad apple spoils the best or something. Like if you have one person in your team who has a bad attitude, 
it can pervade and poison the entire team. And, and it may be a very good person who just maybe doesn't understand the importance of the work that they're doing or don't understand why they're being asked to do work in a certain way. And then it brings down their productivity, but also the entire team's productivity. And there's a, there's a cascading effect. And so I think if people, I always think of the four E's, are, are people engaged, empowered, enthused, and enabled? And unless people have all those four things going on, the hits to the productivity of their team and their organization and anybody else who they deals with can have a real impact on the bottom line. I think the number one thing in this day and age, because we're coming through a pandemic, we're coming out the other end. I'm in Melbourne. We are, if you don't know, we've been the most locked down city in the world past Buenos Aires about three weeks ago. We're world champions, Christine. We're very happy about No, we're not. Yeah, um, right. Winning, winning so the COVID award, right? We win the COVID <laughs> award. I'm putting this in context. So the number one thing in any, in any case, but I think more so now, is create a culture of psychological safety. If you haven't got psychological safety, you will not have any innovation. Andy Stanley says a great quote, and he says, leaders who aren't prepared to listen will be surrounded by people with nothing to say. If you have psychological safety, you'll have innovation. You'll have diversity. You'll have great ideas. You'll have people coming to you. You'll have people who are empowered and non-dependent, right? So I think that's the meter. Psychological safety is so important, and that means reaching out to your people. That means that means your people need your visibility, not your great vision, right, right now. Right, right. So connect with your people, making sure they feel comfortable. Are the ideas coming? If they're not coming and everyone's going quiet, what's going on? So that's the first one. So psychological safety for me. Have that kind of culture of innovation and ideas. It even doesn't matter how big your group is or how small your group is. A really great leader told me a good story he did when he was driving up startups. He was a serial entrepreneur. And one of the things I used to do was weekly failure meetings. So every Friday, you had to bring along something that you failed at that week, but you learned from, right? And, every, and, you, and no one could come without it. You couldn't come along and laugh at me, Christine, right? You can say, oh, Rob, you're an idiot, but you didn't do anything, right? So everyone came to the meeting and you had to come along, what did you do this week? And it could be, I sent a direct mail out. It just didn't work. I tried something on social media and it didn't work. We did a TikTok video and it, went, and it did work. You know, or you had to come along with something you tried that was different, but didn't work. And it's the fastest way to test. Do we have a culture of innovation? Do we feel psychologically safe? Now, another colleague of mine, funnily enough, another guy on a podcast earlier, told me a great story. When he tried this whole idea, he came in to talk about not failure meetings, just where were we up to of all our projects? Tell us everything. And he went around the room and I said, how did that go? And he said, dismal. <laughs> no one volunteered anything. Right. And he said, so I closed the meeting down in 15 minutes. And I went around, did my discovery and said, what, why weren't you prepared to share? And they said, well, we only share outcomes at the end and we're, we're halfway through and it's not going so well and we don't want to tell anybody that. And he realized straight away, I haven't got a, this, these people are not psychologically safe, this environment. I have to change that up. So as a leader, he brought that on himself. And he said, no, I want to go under the hood. I want to know what the problems are. So he said, and again, first thing, model the way, right? It's the number one thing from Kuzis and Posner from the Leadership Challenge is model the way. First thing he did was go, hey, this is where I failed. Guys, this is the project I'm working on. It's not going well. I thought I'd be going a lot better. I'm missing targets. So one, model the way. Secondly, you know, psychological safety. And really work on, work on this whole thing of, of non-dependent, empowered, effective people. Great leaders create more leaders. If you actually think about that, if you think about all the best boss ever, as you probably heard on your program or spoken to, they will have created more leaders. How do you create more leaders? Like, and the way you do that is, well, who's replacing you? So you're a leader. Who's replacing you? Is anyone in your team? Or are you going to go, God, no way would any of these people take my job, right? Well, then I'd have a serious think about how you answered that because, because hey, you're going to be stuck in that job forever. So who's, who's your next replacement? And when you're recruiting your next team member, 
Are you recruiting them? Would there be someone you'd be happy to hand the reins over to? Be confident in what you know and be curious by what you don't know. You know, as leaders, that you are really strong in certain areas. You've had great experiences and great capabilities. And where you don't know something, be authentic in saying, I don't know much about virtual working from home. I don't know how to manage someone's individual stress with young children or aging parents, but I'm here to ask some questions. How can I help you? How can I get you help? And then as you ask those questions, you will learn and it'll move to the category of be confident in what you know. And if you keep with that piece of advice, I find you can weather just about any business or personal up or down. So many entrepreneurs feel like if they ever stop to take a break, they will lose money. Where do you think this belief come from? There are so many layers to why I think this happens, but the first one that I think, you know, I call it kind of two-dimensional thinking about time. So we think of time equaling money. And we're kind of taught that from an early age because we take hourly jobs oh, yeah. where time equals money. In all fairness, many of us as entrepreneurs immediately think to ourselves, well, if we want to make double or triple what we just made in our hourly job, we're going to have to work double or triple the hours. And we sign up for it because we get into businesses we're passionate about and we love that opportunity to create. So it's a little bit of wiring and DNA mixed with a little bit of what I'll call failed logic on the, the physics of how we create money. What I really am, would say is I pay attention to activities that give back more emotional real estate than they take. And so what I would advocate for is instead of thinking of it as taking time away from the business, I would talk about it as investing time in doing activities that give back more energy than they take. So whether that's, you know, just like I was saying to you as we started the show, you know, 20 minutes on the treadmill today just to give myself a chance to catch my breath and get a little bit of movement, that activity gave more energy back than it right. took. And that's where I feel like it's not about taking time away from my business. It's actually about investing in activities that give me energy back that allow me to use that as a budget against my business. You pick up quotes in your life. And the one that kind of came through me through this process was, uh, to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you can be the world. And that really became kind of my mantra to this day. In fact, at one point, my kids had it inscribed on the back of a new iPhone when you could do that a few years ago as a Christmas present, just to remind me that I need to always be mindful. You can do big things with many people, but really you often can just do amazing things with one person if you focus and you don't pass them by. If you learn one new thing a day, I always think it's just been a great day. If you want to hear more, join me at christineleperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.